So Nehemiah is definitely documenting both the workers and the work accomplished. And you probably wouldn't know this by reading it, but what he's doing is he's starting up the northern part of the city, the Sheep Gate, and we'll talk about why he starts there in a second. But he's going counterclockwise all the way around. This could have been a list that he made, kind of as he was making the plan of how are we going to kind of make repairs. We saw, I think last week, when, when we talked about how he assessed the, the, the conditions and had to think about what the plan was to make these repairs of the wall, that this is probably the plan. He was probably assigning these guys to different places, saying, could you build here? Would you do this here? Would you make this thing happen there? And so he has the plan, and so as the work's being done, you can just kind of picture Nehemiah walking around the city wall saying, yep, this guy's doing this, and oh, good, they're doing that. And he's kind of making that list. And he's making that list probably because the uh, Artaxerxes said, look, you need to keep a list. I want to make sure that you're not just kind of having a holiday there in Jerusalem, but you're actually working. Uh, but also for, for an encouragement to God's people, that God's people would see how God motivated them to work together. We saw last week, didn't we, that, that as Nehemiah kind of shared the vision and called the people to respond to what God had called them to do in rebuilding the walls, that it says that the people rep- responded and said, let's arise and build. And it says they strengthened their hand to do the work. And so we see this actually happening. It's actually beginning to happen. It's coming to pass. But I think it's important for us to not forget that we're seeing this, this, this historical thing that's happening. This actually happened in history. This is, we're reading the historical account of who did what. That as we read this historical account, we don't do what we're often tempted to do with lists like this in the Scripture to say, this has got nothing to do with me. I think I'll just skip over this bit. But that we see that there's something here for us. I mean, I, I think I could have probably pulled out dozens of things from this section that, that really apply to how God calls us to cooperate with His Holy Spirit in that work of restoring His people, bringing His people into, making them into the image of Christ. But today I'm going to just give you five things. Five things, okay? Five principles that I think that help us understand what does it mean to, for us to work together towards restoration, doing good works together. The first one is this, we're going to see in verse 1, that we need to consecrate God's priorities. Now, I don't know if you notice, but we see in verse 1 that what we start with is Eliashib the high priest. His name's significant. We'll talk about that in a minute. Eliashib the high priest, he raises up with the brethren and his priests, and where do they begin to build? Right at the sheep gate. And so this would make sense. Their high priest, the sheep gate was where the sheep that were for sacrifice would be coming out of the pastures into Jerusalem getting ready for sacrifice. So it would make sense. This would be a place that the, the, the priest would kind of oversee. So sure, they would build there. But there's something else that's important to recognize here. There's, there's this reality that Nehemiah, in, in sharing this account, he starts at the sheep gate, he ends at the sheep gate. He want, it's like he wants to draw a picture. Look, this is the beginning and the end. This is the, this is the whole thing is summed up here. What takes place at the Sheep Gate is the kind of motivation behind the restoration of the walls. Because remember, the walls were about building a defense around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was about the temple, and the temple was about where sacrifices were made so that God's people could have fellowship with their God. 
And so when, when Nehemiah brings this up, we see that what's happening here is that the priests, they do this, and this is the only gate we see in this section, being this only area we see in, the, in, in this chapter that's being consecrated. Now, you guys probably know what consecrated means, or you're familiar with that word. Basically, it means this. It means to set apart for God's purposes. That's what it means to consecrate. It's to declare something as sacred. It's, it has a sacred purpose. And so they're consecrating this. They're setting it apart. This, is, this sheep gate is not just a convenient place to bring sheep in. This is consecrated for God's holy work. This is a priority. This is what people need to see. This is where everything begins and ends. And so he, he does this because, I believe, he, he wants the, the, the Israelites to remember. Remember why you were doing this work. <laughs> what the purpose was. Let that, that goal be set apart in your mind. Let that be consecrated. That the whole reason you're in the business of restoration, that you're cooperating with God for restoration, is because of what God has provided for you through the sacrifice. Now, of course, in this context, in Nehemiah, the sacrifices were many. They brought sacrifices that were sin offerings that were meant to wash away or literally cover up sin. They did burnt offerings that were to show that they themselves were consecrated to their God that they were in covenant in. They did peace offerings or fellowship offerings that were just a way to say, God, we love you. We want to follow you. And all those sacrificial offerings point forwards to what? To Jesus, to the cross. John the Baptist, to, or the baptizer, you might call him. If you remember him, John the baptizer, when he, he's the kind of forerunner of Jesus. He came on the scene to say, get ready for the Messiah. God's chosen king is coming. And John writes for us that there was a time, uh, John the apostle, not John the baptizer, writes about John the baptizer, uh, of when he kind of connects to Jesus. And it says, the next day John the baptizer saw Jesus coming towards him. And what does he say about Jesus? Behold the what? Lamb of God who does what? takes away the sin of the world. See, what the Old Testament pointed to, what this story in Nehemiah points to, is the priority of sacrifice. But those sacrifices of the Old Testament could only kind of cover up. They could never fully wash away the sin of the people. But when Jesus comes on the scene... John the Baptist doesn't say, behold the Messiah, though he was. Behold the Son of God, though he was. He introduces them, behold the Lamb of God who takes away, not just cover up, but takes away the sins of the world. This, listen, this is the priority that we need to consecrate in our mind. This is what God wants to make known. Even through the process of restoration, the process of us being changed together, what God wants to do is paint a picture of not how great we are or what we're going to get done, but how great He is in providing for us a Savior, providing for us the Lamb who would be that sacrifice to wash away all of our sins. Peter, another apostle, picks up on this theme, and when he writes in his epistle, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Notice, Peter says, once for all. In fact, the cross was so central that, that Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected, and you need to know that's what it is, 
the New Testament, when it talks about Christ crucified, the uh, assumption is he's also resurrected. Because the truth is, if he wasn't resurrected, the cross means nothing. But Christ crucified was the emphasis of all the apostles. They wanted people to know, this is the thing you need to get through your head. The God that we serve, the Messiah that we follow, the King that we bow to is a King who sacrificed himself for us. There's no restoration without him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, For I determined to know nothing, to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, he says, notice, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. But he says, listen, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. When we read Paul's letters, we go, man, this is weighty, substantial profound stuff, but apparently, according to history and even Paul's own words, when he spoke, it wasn't too impressive. He wasn't an impressive guy. History tells us, we don't know how true this is, but history tells us that he was short, fat, bow-legged, big hook nose, and had a whiny voice, and he couldn't see with his eyes. <laughs> kind of wallowed up and said, I got, I got something to say. <laughs> Weak, pathetic. But, what the, the, but the message that God had given him, the truth that he was bringing forth, that God's Spirit would take that and radically transform people. Radically transform people. This is the priority. This is what we see needing to happen. If, if we're going to do the good works that God calls us to, they have to be motivated by the good work that God has accomplished in the cross. In fact, listen. The work of God's Holy Spirit in the life of the church is simply taking what Jesus has accomplished and applying it to our lives. That's what he's doing. He's taking what Jesus has already accomplished and he's applying it to our lives. What, what, what God wants to do in making us like Jesus is guaranteed by the work of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is just applying that to your life. That's what he's doing. This is why this has to be the priority. Listen, if you don't get anything else today, get this, because if you don't get this, everything else is going to just be religion to you. If you don't get anything else, I, I, you know, what's going to end up happening is you're going to go, this is, has nothing to do with me, it's kind of boring and pointless, or you're going to go, oh, I've got to do all these things, I've got to do all these things if I'm going to be a Christian. If you don't get this thing, if you don't set apart, consecrate God's priority of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the sheep gate was first and last because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Eliashib, the high priest, his name means God will restore. That's what his name means. So we need to consecrate God's priorities and we need to do this for each other. We need to speak the gospel to each other. You know, sometimes we think this reality of this truth, this, this kind of the gospel in seed form, Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and rose from the dead. We think that's for new people who don't know Jesus yet, or that's for new Christians who need to understand. No, that's for all of us. That gospel truth is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. And we need to know this. We need to keep that a priority. We need to remind each other of this as we get fatigued in the work of restoration. Wait a second, let's not forget. Let's not forget the work's already been done. We're not building walls around a city so more sacrifices can be done. We're, being, we're building one another up. That's what it means to edify. We're building one another up because Jesus has already paid the price as a sacrificial lamb. We need to consecrate that priority in our head.
Now, if you look at verse 3, what happens? He, he talks about those people, some people, you might notice the kind of different verbs being used. In verse 3, he says, the sons of Hanasa'ah built the fish gates. But then he talks about this, the, that Urijah, or Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Now, if you go through this account, the, the, word, the Hebrew word that's used for built there is used seven times in the account. But there's a Hebrew word for, that's translated uh, repaired or made repairs, and that's everywhere in this section. 32 times in 32 verses. Now, two different words tell us something. They tell us that basically the wall itself was in different stages of dilapidation. Some parts were just flattened to the ground. Some parts were just kind of broken. Some parts were cracked. Different stages. There's, there's an indication in that. But there's also uh, a reality here uh, about what's happening, especially when he uses this term repaired. Because the word repaired there, to made repairs, it's the same word that, that Nehemiah used when it says that the Jews, that, that, that the people there of, of Jerusalem, they strengthen their hands. It's the same thing. It means to make something strong. It means to commit to something. What it doesn't mean is to make something complete. And the reason I want you to understand that is it, there's a real indication here, both by using this particular word over and over again, and also by the whole context of Nehemiah, that they, in, verse, in, uh, in chapter 3, they didn't finish the work. They didn't finish the work, but they did make significant progress, and in a very real way. You know what's happening here? Nehemiah is celebrating the progress. And there's a principle here for us. Because what we can do as Christians, especially modern Western Christians, is we can make one of two errors. One can be like, you know what? I'm saved by grace, man. I'm not really worried about progress. That's God's business. I'm saved by grace. I, I'm, I know I'm going to go to heaven. That's all I'm worried about. And we never actually try to progress. We never actually want to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ and learn to grow and learn to say, okay, Lord, I want to be made like Jesus. But the other, the other extreme is not just saying, I'm already saved by grace. It's like, I've got to be perfect. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be perfect. Jesus, didn't Jesus say, be perfect for your Father in heaven isn't perfect? And we put this pressure on ourselves to be perfected now. When now we are in progress. Listen to this. Paul writes to Timothy. He's, he's writing to Timothy, kind of his protege, someone he had grown up in the faith, had discipled. And here's what he says. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I like the way it paraphrases. He tells this to, to Timothy about his ministry, but applies to all of us in our walks. He says, throw yourself into your tasks so that everyone will see your perfection. Is that what it says? Oh, no. Progress. He says, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. Paul says to, to Timothy, Timothy, listen, keep progressing. Timothy was a young pastor under a lot of pressure to do a lot of difficult things. He seems to be a single man. And yet Paul says, look, Timothy, no one's expecting perfection, but make sure you show your progress. Guys, have you ever been encouraged by the growth of somebody else? Have you ever saw somebody and thought, man, it's so amazing to see that person grow. It's so great to see them. You know, I remember when they first started coming to church three years ago, or I remember when they, they, they were always so bitter about this. Or they, it's amazing how that marriage that was almost going to fall apart is now together. And we just think, wow, God, what you've done. Progress. 
In a very real thing, in a very real way, this is what I think Nehemiah is doing by even giving us the account. He's recognizing authentic progress. We need to do that with each other. Yeah, we all got a long way to go, don't get me wrong. And I'm definitely not saying that we should ignore areas that we need to grow. But guess what? We're all going to get discouraged if we don't point out to each other where we see God's grace in each other's lives. You know what I'm saying? Listen, maybe you're at a place right now where you feel like the only pro- I'm not making any progress. I haven't made progress in years. I'm going backwards. I think I'm backslidden. I'm in a really bad place. And maybe what's happening is you're sitting here today and you're going, man, I don't know if I'm progressing at all. I see myself in a really bad place. Guess what? That's progress. Because you're finally seeing that you're not progressing. Do you see what I'm saying? And we need to say, praise you, Lord, that you would love me enough to expose that, that I'm not making progress. And say, come on, let's grow some more. That's a good thing. We need to do this with each other. Sometimes we don't know where somebody's at, and we don't want to judge. We don't want to say, oh, you know, I really don't think you're a Christian. Or, don't worry, I know you're saved. When we don't really know, let's be honest. We can know that, I can know that I'm a Christian, you can know that you're a Christian, but we can't always know if somebody else actually knows Jesus personally. We can't always know. But what we can see is when we say God doing something in their life, we can acknowledge it to them. You know, I see God's grace in your life. I have no idea where you're at. It's between you and God. You're going to have to wrestle through that yourself. But I see God's grace in your life because you wouldn't be convicted of sin apart from the grace of God. You wouldn't know you need Jesus apart from the grace of God. You wouldn't be attracted to who he is apart from the grace of God. And we need to recognize that work of God. And when people were responding to that grace, we need to say, awesome, let's keep going together. God is growing us. It's so important. It's so important that we do that with each other. I don't know how many of you had parents or a parent who you felt like you could never make happy. It's a really hard thing. You feel like no matter what you do, they're just not happy. It's a hard thing. I want you to know your heavenly Father isn't like that. His standards are far higher than you could ever imagine. You fall farther short than you could ever imagine. But his love for you is so complete and his commitment to bring you from death to life is the testimony of all of Scripture. That's his commitment. If you're willing to believe him, if you're willing to trust what he's done through Jesus. Listen, maybe you're not making the progress you want to, but you know what we want to say to you? You're here today, and that's not because you're so great, it's because God's so great. (laughs) And we want to help you progress, and we want to recognize when that's actually authentically happening. So that's the second thing. First thing, consecrate God's priority. Second thing, recognize authentic progress. Third thing, imitate faithful people. We need to learn to imitate faithful people. We need examples, don't we? In verse 5, what happens? It says, next to them were the Tekoites. They're from Tekoa. And they made repairs, but it says about their nobles, their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Now, some want to say this to their Lord refers to they wouldn't do what God wanted them to do, but it, it's, he, they use a word that probably more means the supervisors, the construction supervisors. So it was a kind of a picture of these guys felt they were maybe a little bit above, above the manual labor. And it's interesting, too, the fact that, that uh, Nehemiah puts this, there's an indication in this that they didn't put their shoulders to the work, but everybody else was. So if you're the lazy type, 
People do notice, just so you know. So everyone else was putting their shoulders to the work, but these guys wouldn't do it. Here's what's great, though. The Tekoites, they have these nobles who should be leading by example, who don't lead well. And we see in verse 5, they still did their work of repairs. And then we see in verse 27 what happens. They move on to another section. They finish their job, and they walk around the wall. There's a new section to do, and they do a new section. I love that. I love that because it gives us a principle that poor examples are poor excuses. Man, I hear so many people say, so many people say, you know what? I don't want to go to church. Christians are full of hypocrites. To which it's easy to reply, well, one more won't hurt. Why don't you come along? Because <laughs> here's the reality. In, in some ways, we can be hypocritical. We are especially hypocritical when we're legalistic. When we act like, I got things sorted, I keep the rules, I, I toe the line. When we act that way, we're most hypocritical, because the truth is none of us do. But there's also this reality, listen, that God calls us to a greater example. God calls Jesus' followers to this. Listen to this. Uh, you, if you were, are following our Bible reading plan, you would have read this this week. Ephesians 5.1, what does it say? Therefore, be imitators of who? God. Be imitators of God as dear children. In other words, we can't stand before God and say, sorry, God, there wasn't any good examples for me to follow. And God says, what about me? What did I do when I took on human flesh and walked this earth? What did I do in sending my son to you? Poor examples are a poor excuse. At the same time, we need to, good examples, and we need to acknowledge good examples as much as we need to recognize bad ones. And the scripture is full of that. New Testament specifically is full of noting bad examples, noting those who claim to be prophets and are false prophets, noting those who claim to be ministers of the gospel and are false ministers. We're meant to do that. We're meant to sort of note people that are dodgy. But we're also meant to note those who actually walk and say, you know what? I want to follow that guy's example. Now, let me say something about this. Maybe some practical advice on this. If you're looking for one person to be your example, you're always going to be disappointed because only Jesus can be that person. What I would encourage all of us to do is look around for several examples. There are people sitting in this room right now that are a massive example to me in my prayer life. Man, they are so committed to prayer. But maybe not so good of an example in other areas. Other people that are great examples to me in what it means to be a godly parent. They... they, they they don't just love their kids. They seek to see their kids know Jesus. They pray for their wayward kids. They invest in all their kids, whatever stage they're in. But maybe they're not so good at something else. Other people that serve in a way that I just go, man, that person never stops. I'm thinking of someone now that I'm not going to mention anyone's names because I don't want to embarrass them, but I'm thinking of someone now who we always kind of joke about on staff. We say, oh, oh who's going to do that? Oh, so-and-so already volunteered. Man, they're everywhere. They're just like there, and then they're there, and they're there. We have to say, no more volunteering, you're doing too much. But maybe they're not so good at such and such. The, the point is simple, isn't it? The thing is, we need to say, okay, God, I need to grow in so many areas of my life. Who do I see is, is farther along than me, and how can I say, Lord, by the grace of God, grow me in that area. Help me to get to know that person and glean from them. This is why, listen, the author of Hebrews gives this exhortation in Hebrews chapter 13. 
It says, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. Now, you need to know the context of Hebrews. Hebrews is the author writing to Christians, Jews who became Christians, who are being incredibly persecuted by other Jews who are not yet Christians. And they are, these leaders had suffered greatly for their faith. And yet, the, the author of Hebrews says, hey, Notice the good outcome of their faith. The good outcome of their faith, they got their crud beat out of them. They had their houses looted. Their family forsook them. How is there a good outcome? The good outcome was that they knew the Lord in a way that you really can't know until you've let the Lord do this kind of stuff in your life. They suffered well. The reality is this. We need to look and imitate faithful people. You know what happens sometimes, and this is the thing that probably grieves me more than anything else as a pastor. Nothing grieves me more that when someone comes and, and, and decides that they don't want to follow after the Lord, they don't want to surrender an area of their life because they see other Christians don't surrender that area of their life. That's so grieving to me. One, because it's a poor excuse, but also because it's so often true. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that easy to think of a lot of examples of really godly marriages. It's not that easy to, to think of a testimony. I'm trying to think of a testimony. I can think of one, maybe two, I, I, if, I, if I recall, maybe two, of testimonies where I've heard from unbelievers what great employees believers are or what great employers believers are or what great neighbors believers are. And I, and I look at this and I think, Lord, make us better examples. Grow us. Restore us. We want to be those that people look to and say, I want to grow like that person. Do this for us. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is what I'm going to call commit to useful participation. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, next to, to him, that is next to whoever was before, <laughs> uh, next to him is Uziel, the son of whoever. And w- what we know about Uziel is he's one of the goldsmiths, and he made repairs. But we also, next to him was this guy, Hananiah, who was a perfumer who made repairs. Now we see a kind of a similar thing happening in uh, the last two verses of the chapter, verses 31 and 32. It mentions goldsmiths, and merchants who were making repairs. Now, this is important. Now, goldsmiths, they, they were metal workers. So they could have actually been especially helpful in hanging, possibly, possibly, hanging the, the bars and the gates. Now, if they, were, if they were full metal smiths and did that, but a lot of goldsmiths were specifically goldsmiths. They made jewelry and stuff. And what are, what, what, what's like a, perfumer, a, a perfumer going to do? I mean, is he going to do his wall and people go, your wall smells fantastic. <laughs> I mean, what, what's that all about? Well, I mean, what's he going to do? No, no, here's the thing. That the thing I'm trying to, to make clear is we see all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, how God uses people's skill sets for his glory and others' good. And that's not just church stuff. I hope you know that God's given you a skill set that you're using in work, that you can use in work, and it can bring great glory to God. As a teacher or a business person or a cleaning houses or whatever you do, 
a doctor, a plumber, whatever you do, you can do to the glory of God, and, and God can be glorified just by using those skills for His glory. And, and the same goes in the church. God wants to use your skills. He, he gives skills naturally. In other words, you're born with certain skill sets, but He also gives skills supernaturally, the gifts of the Spirit. There's a supernatural enabling that God can bring to people. But here's the thing that we need to understand. Well, before I get off, let me just say this. In Romans chapter 12, just to affirm this, right? Talking about the body of Christ, Paul writes, all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body and individually members of one another. What does he say? Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, what should we do? Let us use them. Whatever skills you have, uh, either natural or supernatural, God wants to redeem, He wants to sanctify, and He wants to use for His glory and other people's good. Fact. Full stop. But God's not dependent upon our skill set to use us. These guys were goldsmiths, but they're doing brick and mortar jobs. Perfumers, but doing brick and mortar jobs. Merchants, but doing brick and mortar jobs. Now, I wonder if any of these guys were tempted. I wonder if the goldsmith was like, you know, how about you do it? Then I'll come back and do some nice gold leaf kind of decoration. Or the performer said, you know, these guys stink after a long day's work. I'll just kind of spray them with perfume. That'll be my contribution. Or the merchant saying, you know what? Could you build the wall with some shelves and I'll put some merchandise on there and we can sell and make a profit and I'll give the money to the temple. Those things are good things. They're not bad things. But I wonder, I wonder if these guys were tempted to do that. But yet Nehemiah would have to say to them, listen, this is not why you're here. This is not what you're to do. What you're here to do is help the wall get built. One of the big mistakes we make as Christians, specifically, listen, specifically as charismatic Christians, this is what we make. I'm, I'm in that group. Because we believe that God moves supernaturally, we believe that God gives supernatural gifting, that he anoints people to do specific things, we see that and we make this mistake. We begin to think, okay, the way I'm going to be used by God is to figure out what my gift is. Or to pursue, a specific, if I can just get this gift, then I'll be used of God. That is a massive mistake. Do you know the scripture, especially in the New Testament, when it lists the, the sort of different gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and Ephesians 4, it lists the gifts of the Spirit. For every gift of the Spirit, except tongues, for every gift of the Spirit, there's a corresponding one another command. Did you know that? In other words, hey, this might not be your gift, but you still should be doing this. There's a gift of teaching, but we're all commanded to teach one another. There's a gift of service, but we're all commanded to serve one another. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what's supposed to happen. The, the reality is this. We make this mistake of thinking that if I don't know what my gift is, I can't be of any use. That's a lie. Now, I'm not saying that we should just try to meet every need that we, we see. That can be a bondage as well. But you know what? If there's a need, just meet it. You know, one of the ways we actually find out what we're, our gifts are is by actually just serving in every way. 
This is why Paul, when he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 14.1. He says, pursue love. What's love? Love is, in, in, in conformity to the character of God, love is considering others as better than ourselves, seeking their benefit. He says, pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts. That word there, literally, it's one word, two words there in English, one word in the Greek. It's pneumatikos. It means the work of the Spirit. So it's less about a specific gift and more about just the work of the Spirit. But he does say a specific gift, especially that you could prophesy. You know what prophecy is? Prophecy is having a specific word for a specific person or people group at a specific time. It's God, I, I want to I say that, give that good word in due season. Even when it comes to that, sometimes we're so myopic in what we think prophecy is until we think we have this word that is for the whole country or the whole congregation, God's not speaking prophetically. Hey, God can speak prophetically just because you had a verse on your heart that you thought, you know what, I think this is for you. I won't say who it is because, again, I don't want to embarrass them, but someone uh, told us the other day they were praying for us, me and Sarah, and that our, one of our children was on their heart, and the verse that God put on their heart, they felt really strongly this was a verse for us, and she shared the verse with us. And it so ministered to Sarah and I. The timing was absolutely, stunningly perfect. That was a prophetic word in my mind. The reality is this, guys. Listen. Our commitment doesn't need to be to our gift. Oh, I'm a teacher, man. I don't want to sort of waste time ushering. Or, you know, I, I, I'm above children's ministry. I'm matured past that. Or, you know, I don't have any really good skills, so I'm not really good for anything. That really ends up being a disobedience to these 31 one other commands in Scripture. That's not what God calls us to. Committing to useful participation doesn't mean you sign up for a team, though, as we were mentioned, we do need eight more people to please volunteer and sign up for the children's ministry team. I think we need another five or six for the soup run. Uh, we, we definitely need people to help with these teams, but that's not what we're talking about. That's an expression of this, but it's not just this. It's more than that. It's about saying, Lord, I, I need these people to be used in my life if I'm going to be made like Jesus, and I want to be committed to be available to be used in their life so that they can become like Jesus. That's what I mean by committing to useful participation. This wall got built because people did what they weren't naturally good at doing. They just put their shoulder in the work. The Bible says in, in Galatians chapter 5, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... We've been freed from our sin, from the consequence and the power of sin, soon to be the presence. And he says, only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, that is to live for yourself, really. But through love, serve one another. This is how the walls get rebuilt. This is how God, by His Spirit, makes us like Jesus as His people commit to this kind of useful participation. God I'm here to be used by you. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Everyone plays. Look at verse 10. We're almost done. In verse 10, we read this. This is next to them. Next to them it says, Jedidiah, I can't say his name right. Jed, <laughs> the son of Haramph, made repairs. Notice where he made repairs. In front of 
of his house. Now we see this over and over again. We see this in verse 23. We see this in verse 28. We see this in verse 29. That where they made repairs was where? Right in front of their house. Now was that just laziness? Ah, I don't want to travel. I'll just kind of prepare here. No. Remember, we, we have an indication or a suspicion that Nehemiah set up who should do what. And it was natural for someone to say, oh, you live here? You know what? Just build the wall here. This is going to help everyone in the city if you build the wall here right next to your house. This brings up the fifth principle, which is that we need to strengthen our position. And that means, listen, that restoration should start at home, but it shouldn't stop there. In other words, and this is not just for you married people, don't worry. Uh, we're going to talk to the singles about this as well. This, this applies to you, I promise. But first, for, for us that are married, this is where we start. This is where we focus. Lord, let my priority be praying for my spouse, praying for my children, praying for my parents. Kids, your parents drive you nuts. Pray for your parents. They get it wrong. Pray for your parents. They need your prayers. And we serve one another in our homes. We want our homes to be little churches. No, that's wrong. We want our church to be a big family. We want our church to be a family of families. We, we, we follow Jesus at home, and when we come together, we encourage each other to continue to follow Jesus, to be that family. We strengthen the position right in front of us. This is such an important principle that when the Apostle Paul is dealing with the fact that there are widows in Ephesus that aren't being taken care of, and there's been a lot of pressure on the church to take care of them, this is what he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Listen. He says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and to repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. God is pleased when we say, okay, my ministry, first and foremost, is my family. This is where we need to be. Now, I, I say that as somebody who knows I've often fallen short in this. I praise God for the grace that He so convicted uh, me early on that when we started having kids, that we knew we needed to take Monday off. I'm a bit of a, I can be a bit of a workaholic. That, that's not a good thing. And um, it's very easy for me to find my identity in my work. I have to constantly repent of that. You can pray for your pastor for that. And so with that, uh, there was a tendency to work too much. I mean, so much so that my boss had to say, John, don't like, let ministry become a mistress. It's always on my case about working too much. And so God gave me the grace to say, we need to make sure Monday's our day. I only think, that's, I, th I really do believe that is what saved our family. God used the fact that Monday was a family day. Everyone else, go away. We would screen our phone calls. Sometimes people would call, it's an emergency. And I'd text back, can you please name the emergency? When's the Bible study next week? <laughs> That's not an emergency. <laughs> um, and, and so the thing is, that gave us a chance to make sure that we could prioritize our home because we need, all of us, the Browns need restoration. We need to be made like Jesus. And we need to help each other make that a priority. Now I want you to also notice in verse 12, along the same line of strengthening your position about Godliness starting from home. It says, next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohash, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem. And what did he do? He was this leader, and he and his daughters made repair. This is significant. First of all, I think we should notice when women are mentioned in Scripture, because since Scripture was written 
in a patriarchal society, people make the mistake of thinking that we're meant to still be a patriarchy. We're not. According to Ephesians, it's really clear that we should be a complementarian culture. We should be people that value different roles of men and women, but see us as having equal access and value in Christ. Okay? So when this is mentioned, this is really significant for two reasons. One is it probably means he didn't have any sons, but instead of just kind of copying out, he says, come on, girls, you're going to do this work with me. This is significant work, and you should be involved in this. It's important that we are pursuing the work of restoration as a family. This is why I say it, didn't, shouldn't just, it should start at home, but it shouldn't stop there. It's important that we, as families, serve Jesus together. Now, this is what, what, what the Bible says the gospel brings. Listen to this. Luke chapter 1, verse 17 says this. He will also go before him. This is talking about um, uh, John the Baptist going before Jesus. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, with the coming of Jesus, the preparation of that was God beginning to do a work through John the Baptist to call parents back to godly parenting. And you say, wait a second, John, you said this was going to be okay for singles. I'm not married, or we don't have kids. Here's what the scripture says in Psalm chapter 68, verse 6. God places the lonely, or single, basically is what that means, in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. I want to make this really clear. If you're a, a, a follower of Jesus, your identity is not first husband, wife, son, daughter, parent. Your identity is a child of God through faith in Jesus. That's what it is. Uh-oh. It's okay. No, it's fine, yeah. We're going to pray for you guys. <laughs> Father, we pray for this guy. It's painful to hurt your ankle like that. We ask that you would... Uh, bring the right medical attention. And Lord, even if you want to do a healing right now, we pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, it's fine. I don't know if, uh, while they're waiting, if someone wants to give them some coffee as well, you guys could do that. The reality is this. We are one family under a heavenly Father. Whether we're single, married, have kids, don't have kids, kids are growing up, doesn't make a difference. We're one family, and we should strengthen that position as family and serve here. This is why, over the years, we've had lots of people that come to servants, and they like servants, they enjoy the teaching, they enjoy the fellowship, but their commitment is actually somewhere else. And we say to them, listen, we're so glad you're blessed when you come here. Get the stuff online. Listen to teaching online. That's great. Do it. But commit to your church. If it's a dodgy church, we say, come here. But <laughs> usually they come from decent churches. So we say, commit to your church if you don't have to commit to that church. And if not, commit here. Because this is our section of the wall. This is where we need to grow as a family. Where we need to serve as a family. We're not better. Our section isn't better than anybody else's section. But it's our section. We want to build right here. We want to strengthen this position. The reality is, guys, 
God calls us to good works, and he calls us to do those good works together because as we each do the works he's called us to, guess what? Everybody gets restored. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that you love us, and I thank you, Lord, that you want to do this work. Father, we pray uh, that you would, you would help us to be honest about where we are, Lord. If we have not set apart as holy the work of the cross, if we've not seen the completeness of the work, Lord, we repent. We turn back to you and say, forgive us, Lord. We believe that what Jesus did for us was enough. We believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, if we are not helping each other recognize authentic progress so that we can make more authentic progress, Lord, forgive us. We can be hypercritical or hyper-lazy. Forgive us for both those sins. And Lord, help us to pursue progress by your grace, for your glory. Lord, make us better examples to one another. Teach us to commit to real involvement, Lord, real participation to serve one another. And Lord, help us to be godly families who gather together as one godly family. Lord, good works bring glory to your name and and are beneficial to us. Lord, may we be zealous for them. Please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.